Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We see these mysterious words that John records that our Lord hid himself. The fathers think that rather than hiding behind a pillar or in some corner of the temple, our Lord made himself invisible to the multitude there that wanted to kill him so that he could die by the crucifixion rather than stoning. Whatever the case, he hid himself. And ever since Septuagesima, we've been hiding things of our Lord from ourselves. We've been making the liturgy more austere. Today we hid the prayer, the, the Psalm 42 at the foot of the altar and other certain prayers in the liturgy. And we hide the images. All of this because of this gospel which speaks about our Lord hiding himself. And this is not just a physical sense. Deus absconditus, the hidden God. He's the one we worship. And as we begin what's called Passion Tide, we find a new revelation, so to say, of this hidden God, precisely in humiliation, suffering, and sorrow. You are truly a hidden God, says Isaiah 43, Deus absconditus. Our Lord is the hypostatic union, the union of human nature and the divine nature. And it's precisely the limited mortal human nature that ironically hides what is immortal, what is infinite, what is divine, which is eternal. When we say that something is hidden, it happens in two ways. Either our intellect is incapable of grasping it, or there's a veil that prevents us from seeing it. And in our Lord, it's both of those things. That's why Thomas, when he speaks about the Deus Absconditus, he says he's like a fish in a stream. We see the water that hides the fish, but we know the fish is there. In our Lord, we see the humanity, we know the divinity is there, but it's hidden from our eyes. It's even hidden from our intellect in the sense of our inability to grasp it. So that's why, you know, the Catholic faith is not a faith of intellectual elites. Otherwise, only geniuses could be saved, and there aren't, enough, there aren't any geniuses who would understand the mystery of the hypostatic union. And so our, our faith is more of the will under the action of grace in assenting to what our Lord says, what the church teaches us because of the authority of our Lord, because of the authority of the church. And then once we've made that assent with our will, we have a duty to try and understand everything we can as best we can, and our inability to grasp things is never an excuse to put them into doubt. But this hiddenness of our Lord is especially, well, it sounds strange to say, especially apparent 
this hiddenness is more pronounced, better said, in the humiliation and the passion, where in an extraordinary way, our Lord submits his sacred humanity to all of these humiliations and sufferings, eclipsing like a cloud eclipses the sun that we know is there, eclipsing the divinity, eclipsing his glory, eclipsing his claritas, right? The, the, the revelation of his divinity through his body, like we saw on the second Sunday of Lent in the Transfiguration. And so our Lord's sacred humanity serves as a veil. It prevents us from seeing the, the, the divinity of our Lord and nonetheless is the vehicle. Our Lord chose to reveal himself, to reveal the Father. And the, these are not two natures at odds or at loggerheads with each other. Just because he's material. We're not Gnostics, we're not Manichaeans. So his, his human nature, his body is not a defect. It's not an ill. It's not something that's missing. Rather, it's a perfection of a nature. It's a perfection of a human nature. And our Lord created, we see that in the first lines of Genesis, everything he created was good. But this sacred humanity is really the masterpiece of creation of the Holy Spirit. Both natures have all of the properties of their respective natures, one simple, one composite, one immortal and the other mortal, one created and the other eternal. And it would be wrong to suggest a conflict between these two natures in our Lord. The Logos, the divine word, is the pattern for all creation. He is the original exemplar for everything that exists. And so if we don't, if we don't see the smallest grain of sand, if we don't see the stars, if we don't see ourselves, others, through the prism of the sacred humanity, we don't see it correctly. Our Lord is not only the revelation of the Father, He's also the revelation of creation. He's the Lord of creation, but He's also its exemplar. And because our Lord chose to be incarnate, because our Lord chose to suffer in this flesh, he even raises such things as what's called, what Thomas calls the malum pene, the, the evil of punishment. He raises that to a good when it's at the service of divine justice. Because he underwent it. And this is, this is important to understand, that our Lord raised suffering from pure evil to a vehicle of sanctification and salvation. And so how do I embrace suffering? How do I see suffering? Do I see it through the prism of the incarnation and my adhesion to him who said, if you would follow me, pick up your cross if you would follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, this cross, this suffering, then is a necessary part. Why does our Lord hide his divinity like this? 
Thomas says there are three reasons. One is to ensure the passion and the cross. If the Jews could have seen his divinity, they never would have crucified him. Number two, it makes faith meritorious because divinity isn't something we can see. Paul tells us that faith comes from hearing, not from seeing. It comes from hearing. And that's the word of God with the authority of the church. And so because of the authority of the church, we believe in what we cannot see. Even when we hear Thomas after the resurrection say, my Lord, my God, he's still making an ascent of the faith because he sees the risen humanity of Christ. He doesn't see his divinity. That's still an act of faith. Third reason is that had his divinity been manifest, we would have doubted his humanity. And so that's precisely the crooks of this gospel. They see his humanity and doubt his divinity. And our Lord affirms his divinity when he says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the, God's own self-revelatory words to define himself because he is the one who revealed himself to Moses. So our Lord is clearly declaring his divinity in today's gospel. And this then brings about his death. And so that's why it's called Passion Sunday. Today is really the Sunday of the breach. It says he hid himself and left the temple. So the divine presence leaves the temple. The temple is now a museum. It's empty of the divine presence. Our Lord has left it. He's hidden himself. And so in order to submit himself to the passion. And so this suffering in his sacred humanity is going to become a new revelation because we're in it we see aspects of our Lord that we never knew about before. We see the, the extremes of his mercy. We see the depths of his goodness. We also see divine justice imposed on himself, paying for what we could never repair. He takes upon himself all of our sins from Adam to the last man, takes it upon himself, and only our Lord could do justice to all of that sin. Only he could. Not one of us and not all of us together. Only our Lord. And so this is Passion Sunday where our Lord hides himself. He also hides himself from those who are steeped in sin. If we have habitual sins, our sins do damage to our faith. The more we separate ourselves from our Lord, we can go to sin, go, we can sin, go to confession, sin gravely, go to confession, sin. We're still doing damage because there isn't a conversion. When we confess, we have to have a firm purpose of amendment. That means the firm will to never repeat these sins again. If we do, we confess again. But we, we have to have that firm, what's called firm purpose of amendment. Or we're, it's sacrilegious. Our confessions become sacrilegious. If we don't have a firm purpose of amendment, we're not absolved. We're just stacking sin upon sin. 
So we got to think about what this means. Our Lord hides himself from those who are steeped in sin because ultimately if we, if we call something evil good, there's, it's a self-imposed schizophrenia. And as a result of this self-imposed schizophrenia, my theological virtue is being damaged. And it could be a damage to such an extent that our Lord retracts because we ultimately get what we want. And so, if we are steeped in sin and we don't have this firm purpose of amendment, our, we can dam do such damage to our faith that our Lord is hidden in perpetuity. There is another hiddenness that we see in the lives of those who are very close to our Lord, who don't sense His presence, who undergo all sorts of trials and crosses, much like Edith Stein when she was arrested from her Carmelite monastery and was put on the train to Auschwitz. And the last words that she said were, now I get to serve our Lord interiorly in purity. In other words, without her community, without the liturgy, without all of the externals of a bride of Christ. And her worship was not diminished. Those were just circumstances. We too experience this divine game of hide and seek when we're trying to love him, when we're trying to follow him and serve him, and we don't sense his presence, we don't see him, that's fine. It's just a situation. And it's precisely the situation our Lord wants us in so that we can exercise faith because that is how we follow him. Carrying our cross and being faithful to him without the trappings, without all of the supports that we would like to have and think we need so much and we don't. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.